You're listening to How Do You Decide with Megan Stafford, a podcast that explores how the decisions we make shape us, the crossroads, the difficult choices, and how sometimes the smallest decisions can have the biggest impact. Join me as I meet everyday Aussies and find out about their lives, the decisions that changed them, and how they coped along the way. This week on the podcast... I'm who I am, I swear like a bloody seaman. I grew up in Mount Isa, so I'll kick the guts out of any bastard who steps on my toe. That's Joe McNichol Furclough. Joe is what we call a character. But I think that's being simplistic because there's a whole lot to Joe. She is, as we all are, multidimensional. The wonderful thing about Joe is that she's direct about that fact. She doesn't beat around the bush. She tells it how it is. And we often don't know what to do with that. So we laugh and say, what a character. But what I'm interested in is what makes people who they are. And in this episode, you are going to get that in a big way. For example, Joe was hit by a bus. Yes, I'm serious. A big old bus in Townsville knocked her down on King's Road. She fractured two discs, one in her back, one in her neck. That story is something we just mentioned in passing in this conversation because there was just so many other things to unpack. The same can be said about Joe's cervical cancer diagnosis. We didn't even get to it. Our conversation went for hours and hours. So how do you decide what to cut? Well, when you run a podcast exploring that question, you get bold enough to cut out pretty big events like getting hit by a bus and cancer. Not because they weren't important, but because what I've kept will, I trust, show the many sides of Joe. If you're worried that I've cut all the good anecdotes, let me tell you what remains. There's Joe getting stabbed by her then husband. There are three other cancer diagnoses. There's family tensions and trauma. And listeners, there is even a name bleeped out in this episode. Joe wasn't afraid to share about her life. She did, however, want to make sure she protected the people in her stories. I was able to cut out most of the names in my editing from the audio but I did have to call on my audio engineering skills at one point to bleep one out. Keep an ear out for it. I hope you're getting the picture. This episode, the last of season one, is big. Let's get to it. Joe McNichol Furclough. I was born in Leith, Edinburgh, Scotland, 1953. Our house burnt down when I was about 14 months old. Thus the asthma, I got scarring on the lung. And I'm sure my sister got brain damage. Um, That's not being facetious either. I mean, we found out a few years ago, she's bipolar, that I think part of that is brain damage from when we were little. Now, back in the day, it was cheaper for us to migrate to Australia than what it was to rebuild a home or there was no insurance or anything like that straight after the war. We were still on food rations. My uncle was in Australia, but to get the £10 for my parents each, so that was £20, it took us five years to save them. Oh, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty poor. Wow. We were paupers, yeah. And obviously two small children. Yep, and yep. Then... And we were in hospital for, well, I was in hospital for, must have been six, seven months, and my sister was in a bit longer from smoke inflation. We were locked in the bedroom. The door slammed shut, so... I don't really remember much about it, but the first distinct memory I had of the fire was tasting ginger nut biscuits. That was what my mind related the choking with. Yeah, well, that's that's what the um, psychological um, analyst said. Yeah, I suppose it's probably what it is. That was my first memory, riding in an ambulance with the ginger nut biscuit. And my mother swore blind I never had any biscuit in the ambulance. But I could describe nurse. No, I was only 14, 15 months old, so it must have been one of those vivid memories. Anyway, uh, from there, we moved to Paisley to my dad's sister. We, so is Paisley in... in Paisley Glasgow is or? just outside of Glasgow. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, it's sort yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. But I was brought up as Glasgow. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> We come to Australia 1958 on or We arrived in Australia, I think it was the day before Anzac Day in Sydney. My uncle was to meet us at the railway station in Brisbane. 
Uh, we arrived in Brisbane. My uncle was there in his pyjamas and we couldn't work that out. We thought, Australia's slack. <laughs> I was only five or six at the time. There was this parade everywhere. And he says, that's McNichol Day. They know you are all coming, so there's a big parade for you. I was 10 before I found out what Anzac Day was. <laughs> all these people are waving flags and I'm bowing. <laughs> anyway, it turned out my Uncle Alan had lung cancer, end-stage lung cancer, but he hadn't told anyone in Scotland in case it stopped us from coming out. So that was devastating Dad and he started hitting the bottle pretty hard. How then, did they communicate through Sorry, Gerda's? No, it was just letters. Letters. Yeah, and it took about three weeks, unless she could afford email. But maybe you could afford email. I started school in 59. Our neighbours at the time, we lived in Highgate Hill in Brisbane. And our neighbours had a fence that ran along there and then just dropped off. But our street was like a, a ramp. He owned um, a news agent's. So there was all these wonderful boxes. To, so we put it at the end of the fence run along the fence, jump over the letterbox, land in the box and slide down the hill. I was doing my turn and my foot got caught in the letterbox. All of me went down except my leg. <laughs> it corkscrewed. Oh my <laughs> I ended up in hospital for 18 months and then I was in full body plaster from here. Down. The leg actually had to be unscrewed, untwirled. <laughs> and then broken and set. Uh, with the result, this leg's about that much shorter than that one. They fixed it. I've had no problems with that thigh since, because it was up in the thigh, sort of. Being only five or six, it just, it was pliable. Yeah. But it took a long time to straighten out. Um, they thought they would have had to put a pin in it, but I, I healed. But I got institutionalised then. I think I been in hospital from five to about seven, it's sort of on and off. I got used to being there away from everyone, so it disconnected me a bit from my sister. <laughs> my sister, my, my parents and my sister all had black hair, brown eyes and sort of olivey skin. I came out of nowhere and I was pure white hair, um, blue eyes and me. <laughs> Anyway, when, when we were, um, must have been 62, my dad won a thousand pounds on a casket ticket. He put a deposit down on a house in Tuong and my mother and my sister and I went back to Scotland to see our grandparents and family because she was really um, finding it hard. She, we thought she just had a nervous breakdown and nobody ever told us kids anything. All we know is mum went to the hospital, come home like a zombie and that was it. You didn't get told anything, you know, that, that was adults' business. Anyway, we went back to Scotland, we were, we went to Carlisle to see my mother's brother and his family and there was a cemetery just over the, the green, they, sort of little greenway like a path, they called it the green and then there was the cemetery at the back of it and I kept hearing voices and I thought, you know, I said to my granny, I said, I can hear people. Don't be silly, don't be silly. Let's just see what happens. We went back to Edinburgh to my grandmother's and she took us to Edinburgh Castle. And she had a friend who was the night watchman and he took us down into the dungeons. And we were down there and I could honestly see these people licking the walls. And I said to granny, he's licking the wall, he wants water. She says, give him this. I says, he's not taking it. She says, just put it beside him. The warden just took off. She says, come on, love, we'll, we'll go now. And then she said to me, oh, you've got the fae. She says, your mother had it too. That's um, the sight. I could see dead people. And I blocked it for years. I blocked it. I didn't want to know. But um, we come back to Australia. I think I had my 10th birthday party. And um, we had a sleepover. It's when an uncle molested me and my mother wouldn't listen. And I kept it quiet for a long time. 
Anyway, one of my other cousins come up and said something about your drunken father. I says, well, at least he doesn't touch you. And of course, she went home and told her parents, I had to go and apologise. As far as I was concerned, anything I felt from my mother stopped, which was hard to do at the time. I think it was only 12, 11, 12. Anyway, we moved to Mount Isa and I did the last term of Mount Isa at primary school there. And I loved it, absolutely loved Mount Isa. My wheezing had stopped, the asthma had stopped, the dry heat was just what I needed. The bloody uncle turned up up there. Here we go again. Anyway, I must have been grade eight. My parents went to Brisbane, I can't remember what for. And we stayed with good friends of ours. And I got up one morning and I said, my knee hurts. And she had a look and it was out there and it was red. She says, well, I'll take you down to the hospital. I'll get hold of your mum and dad. The hospital contacted my parents and told them to come back. There was something wrong with me. They didn't say what. They said it was a cancer. And dad, he's a big marshmallow. He was dead in there crying, probably pissed when, when I think about it. He was a happy drunk, though. He was a good drunk. We're standing there. They said, we have to operate and do a biopsy straight away. And they said, okay, so long as you put it to sleep first. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what the hell's a biopsy? <laughs> anyway, they put me under and I thought, what the hell's going on? Anyway, I was told I couldn't tell anyone that I'd had cancer or no one will come near me. Because back in the day, if you had cancer, it was a life sentence. And a lot of kids wouldn't play with you because they were scared to catch it. I mean, come on, we'd just gone through polio. Measles, German measles was a death sentence. Cancer, that's even worse than German measles. So I got sent to Brisbane where I had the chemo. I was there 21 and 7, 28 days. Uh, we had to be there a day before and we were there for six days after the chemo. And it was when you got... Uh, 21 days straight chemo into the vein, no break. And out of the 24, 30 kids that went in, there was only four of us who walked out. Only four of us survived. The biggest thing I remember that was the green tiles everywhere. Was on the floor, the walls, every hospital I went to after that, that's all they had was the green. Anyway, the bone, bone cancer. I was very, very lucky. The tumour I got, most kids pass away from it. I was very, very fortunate because of where it was. It was under the patella. Most of them get it mid-thigh or mid-leg. Mid Mine's was right on the edge. It was just, I don't know how, I don't know how I survived it. I really don't. I still sit here. I've even said to Terry quite often, how the hell am I still here? Why? You know, there's got to be a reason, but why look for one? I'm just grateful I am here anyway. That's all right. I come back. By the time I come back, I'd been away from the family so long as a child. I didn't need them. I was self-sufficient. Dad and I still were very, very close. Our natures were very similar. We'd fight. We'd make up. I'd call him a dickhead. He'd call me something else. <laughs> this banter went on for years. But with my mother... I just wiped my hands off her after the uncle episode. I just couldn't trust her. She wouldn't listen to me. She just wouldn't listen. She would not accept. How can I put this delicately? She hated me. She, she really, she had even said to me in front of my sister, if you'd have been born first, your father would have left me because you're nothing like him. And things like that. Now, when you were 10 and 11 year old, what does that mean? It's, um, it was very hard to take and yeah I did feel I went on the wrong side for a bit you know, I started smoking and getting into punch ups at school and having fun I learnt how to drink <laughs> man I learnt how to drink <laughs> and that's a lot to cope with like all of those years in hospital as a kid on and off yeah, yeah. yeah. I just can't even you know, being molested as a child it was hard. Like it was hard. Member who then is still present in your life? Like, did you yep. ever bring it up with your father as well? Or did you no. Just, no, 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 because he would have gone around and killed him. I know that. And you're uh, about how old were you at this point? Twelve, thirteen, about thirteen. 
old enough to be able to you know, go, go screw yourself very unladylike, um, which didn't help. It didn't help the situation in hindsight. <laughs> but um, my dad was the president of the Caledonian Society up in, up in Mount Isa, and um, he helped start the Irish club up there. Um, and there Scotland was, was starting an Irish club. Yeah, yeah. But see, it was all Celtic. It wasn't, yeah. yeah. And I was brought up as um, a Scots Protestant, which is just as bad as the Irish IRA. Um, very bigoted. Very. If we brought someone home, the first question the dad would ask, "What religion?" Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was brought from Scotland to you. Now we're talking about sixty-one, sixty-two. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't dare bring a Catholic home. No, no. My sister started dating this school teacher. And um, he used to teach me bookkeeping. And I decided that was it. I went to the mines and I got a job in the computing back in the old days with the reels and the punch key cards. I lasted there three days and I went up and saw them and I decided some of my friends who were hopeless at school uh, were waitresses in the mess. So... I said, I want to go over the mess. Oh, my father nearly killed me over that. All that education and that bloody serving food. <laughs> and I said, well, I want to go back to Scotland. I said, um, it's better money anyway, because it was shift work. Anyway, Dad said, he was pissed. <laughs> he said, whatever you save in six months, I'll double it. You're on. That was it. I got a second job at Andy's Coffee Shop. Um, I finished at the mines at 7 o'clock at night, then I started at Andy's at uh, 7.30, finished at 11, and then I'd go and clean uh, the garage out. <laughs> so I had these three jobs go off for six months and sort of drinking drinking and partying in between. <laughs> what time did you finish cleaning then? Probably about half past 12, 1. Back to work you? at 6. So far, far. Yeah, but come on, when you're 17, 18 year olds, you can't do it, you know. Especially if you've got a couple of Jim Beams down you. you <laughs> and I sort of tend to be a bit hyper when I'm an alcohol, a bounce. So, yeah, I went back to Scotland. So, and it was great because I was only 17 when I went over and there's no age limit of drinking out at sea. My father wasn't amused. <laughs> then I went and saw my granny again and... I just had this heart-wrenching, I knew she was going to die. I knew it. We always said Granny was pickled. And they were scared to let her go in case if they did a cremation. And <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't think like that, should I? <laughs> uh, went back to Australia. Couldn't settle back to family life. I thought, no, I just can't do this with my mother anymore. Just can't. My old boyfriend and I got back together and we got engaged. Now, don't ever believe anyone who says you can't get pregnant the first time. That's bullshit. The night we got engaged, we did. In the back of a mini, a two-door mini. Anyway, I decided to join the army. I went down there and after about the first three weeks, I started feeling really yuck, really yuck all the time. Anyway, I passed out on parade one day and they took me to the hospital and I come out with, I was pregnant. So we got married, but just before we got married, I said to Dad, he's a wanker. So Dad said, don't marry him. I said, well, I can't now. You tell her. He says, tell her. I said, tell Mum. So we went through the charade, and Dad said to me on the way, he says, you know, we could be in Townsville this afternoon. <laughs> Let's just keep going. No. And, and would there have been, as well, the stigma of having a child? Well, that's no. Well, my sister fell pregnant at 16. So, no, there'd been no stigma on me at all. Well, I was only about two and a half, three months pregnant, so you couldn't even see it. And um, with my asthma and everything, mum apparently had told a lot of people that um, they had to bring the baby on early because of my health. Bullshit! He was full term. He was a bloody little porker. He was seven pounds seven and only 18 inches long, so he was a bit like me. <laughs> um, the trouble started when he was about three months old. That's when the ex started going out partying and drinking, and he passed out in the creek one time. He couldn't remember who he was or where he was, but he remembered my mother's phone number. This is when the punch-up started. If he hit me, I'd hit him back. Only I grew up with mostly boys, so if he hit me, I'd 
double decorating with knuckles. It wouldn't just be a slap or a punch, it would be a knuckle. Uh, that's why they're so knackered today. <laughs> but, um, the mines used to put on this thing called the Christmas tree. And every year at Christmas, a certain date in December, every child whose parent worked in Mount Isa Mines or any underprivileged child all got a present from Santa. Everybody. They'd put on fireworks. There was a big family there. They put bands on one at the center and one at that. It was a big, big night. Anyway, he said he'd be home. His little sister was getting a present. Our Billy was getting a present. So I said to him, well, we can't leave here any later than five. I waited till half past five, quarter to six. And I thought, I'm not walking in the dark by myself with a baby. So I took off, went and got the presents and all the rest. Come back. 10 o'clock, he got home, pissed his big love bites all over his neck. And he says, come on, let's go. I said, no, I'm not going now. And that started a huge fight. And that was the night he dragged me into the kitchen and took a knife to me. Told me that's what he thought of our effing marriage. Bloody under here, in the, the gut. Anyway, I grabbed the knife with both hands. He threw his wages down the toilet. So I'm in there with bloody hands trying to drag the money out of the toilet. He took off. So I took off. I'm not staying here. I grabbed the baby and I was still in my nighty. And you're pregnant. I'm pregnant. Well. Yeah, I was about four and a half, five months pregnant. And you've got the gash under the I've chin. I got the gash under the chin. My stomach was bleeding that. And I started to dribble a bit. And um, I got a taxi and the taxi was a friend of my dad's. And he just looked at me and he says, oh, for God's sake, Joe, what happened? I said, can you take me to dad's? And he said, gee, he says, but you stay in the car. I'll get your mother out. So they took me straight to the hospital. The hospital flew me to Townsville. The heartbeat was all right, still no scans, but they put me on dialysis for two months, I think it was, three months, because there was blood, I mean, because he stabbed me and where he stabbed me, the blood loss was up and down. I, I really don't know what the technical names were, but um, after two months of dialysis, I settled down. And back then they had these little cottages right at the rock pool in Townsville and they were the CWA cottages and they used to have eight to ten beds in them. So I was in one on my own with the baby and that, that was great. That was really good. Anyway, my sister How told... Time, I don't know. I really don't know. I think um, survival mode just kicks in. All I knew was I didn't want to go back to him Anyway, I came back to Mount Isa. He'd closed the flat down, got rid of all the furniture, the whole lot. So I had nothing, absolutely nothing except for what I stood up in. There was no single mother's benefits. There was nothing like that at all. Anyway, um, they gave me this piece of paper to go to the social services with. And it was called Deserted Wife's Pension. Now, you had to stand in line. There was no distinction. You were all deserted. You were all dumped. That, to me, was more devastating than anything else because I'd always had money. I'd always been able to support myself. So my first thought was I need to hurry up, have the baby and get back out to work. My, my mother said you can stay until the baby's born and then you've got to get out. And I thought, fair enough. That's, you know, didn't think much about it. So when, by the time I went into labour with Jock and the twin, it was a 42-hour episode before she was born. And back then they didn't have the epidurals and, and because of my asthma, they couldn't give me anaesthetic because they'd left me for 40 hours. I was overtired, my asthma had started, so anaesthetic was a no-go. So by the time the little one was born, they rushed her out. There was a lot of problems now. If they didn't live for 15 minutes, or I'm not sure what the time was, she only breathed for about four minutes, but they whisked her away. Now, one of the nurses told me she got the brunt of the knife. Another nurse said it was a twin to twin. The doctor said she was a non-event, meant she didn't breathe for this amount of time, so she was classed as a miscarriage. Um, when I wanted to see her, they wouldn't allow me to, but then I went straight back into labour. When She was only, I think it was £4.5 when she was born. Jock was eight, ten and a half. So they're trying to tell me it was twin to twin, but I was only four and a half, five months pregnant when I got stabbed. So 
she may have passed, then we don't know. There was just a lot of unanswered questions. There was a lot of hurt, anger. The cops wouldn't do anything because the doctor said she was a non-event. That meant no birth certificate, no death certificate. If I'd had a death certificate, he'd have been charged with murder or assault at the most. Yeah, yeah. But none of that. None of that happened. No, I, no, I didn't know I was having twins. Absolutely not. No idea. I thought I was just a big jelly pod. You know, I really, I could sit my dinner on my belly, sit <laughs> my dinner off my belly, but no, no idea. Nobody ever picked up that there was two heartbeats. I've heard it's quite common from our age group, but I'd never heard of it before. And then you're just the devastation of losing a child that you've just given birth to. That's correct. Yep. It, it was horrific. The only the only way I can describe it is gut wrenching, horrific. When um, Jock was born, he was born sick as well. It turned out he had double pneumonia, but they think it was a bit of an infection. What was going on in the twins' placenta? So when he was born, he was straight on antibiotics. So by the time he was three or four, his teeth had all rotten because he'd had that much antibiotic. He's he's fine now. Um, he thinks he's God's gift at the moment. <laughs> oh, shit, just let me clear these eyes. Yeah, I try not to go to that place very often. Yeah, it was pretty hard, but Jock was, what, six weeks old. And this is when I started noticing my mother was really offered rocker. He was only six weeks old. She says, you've got 24 hours to get out of my house. I hate you here. I didn't know what to do, so I went to old Bob Catter. And I sat there and I had a good cry and told him what was going on. I must have only been 20, 21. He, I was the first woman ever in Queensland to get a housing commission house without a husband. That was never done before. It was Bob Catter who put his name on the lease with mine for me to get the house for 12 months. No, their father. Bob Catter Senior's father. Old Bob. Yeah, there's old Bob, young Bob and Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I distinguish him. Well, old Bob actually had been a friend of my dad's and he'd came to my wedding, my first wedding. Anyway, um, I got a house in Diane Street and now I had nothing, absolutely nothing. Dad brought a box of cutlery and some food and whatever and I lived out of an esky for the first three weeks, whatever. Bob Catter, old Bob, had brought over bits and pieces that I could use but we only had one mattress, so me and the two kids slept on the mattress for the first six months, seven months, yeah. Anyway, after that, once I started settling down and started feeling a bit stronger, I made inquiries and got the kids booked into a kindy and I got a job in the mines up in mining research. Um, I used to walk from Diane Street out to the mines every morning and afternoon, drop the kids off to kindy pick them up, be close to four or five miles. And I'd bought this second-hand old beat-up bloody push pram. <laughs> and Jock was still tiny. So I'd get Billy in there and belt him in there. And then I'd sort of belt Jock to him. <laughs> and I'd take their breakfast with us because they'd still be sleeping. I'd leave home about half past five in the morning to get to work by eight o'clock. So... And then of an afternoon, I had a friend whose father owned, um, it was like a takeaway shop, and I'd order crumb sausages and potatoes or whatever, whatever I could afford, and then we'd share that on the way home. That was our tea, yeah. It was it was pretty hard the first couple of years, but you get there. You know, you do. a support network of friends around you? I had lots of friends, but no, I wouldn't ask for a cent from my mother. But even just emotional support, I mean, no, just lost. no, I kept that to myself. I, Like I said before, I got institutionalised. I was on my own. I had to do this on my own. And it's not that I was a stubborn bitch or anything like that. It was just I'd never had that. So why look for it now? I was so tired. I was just so tired all the time. I don't think I really... Well, as I, as I progressed, I got bits and pieces for the house. And it took me nearly three years to get um, the house furnished and beds for all of us. It took close to three years to do that. 
Um, but we were still walking. We still didn't have any vehicle or anything. My father would lend me the car every now and then if mum wasn't aware. She was diagnosed with schizophrenic, must have been about 64, 65. So all the years she took it out on me, she'd been ill. Now, nobody ever told me that. And if I'd have realised, maybe my attitude would have been different towards her. But there was, by this time, the damage was too great. Anyway, I wasn't interested in any kind of romantic, not, not, you're off the books. I don't know. He disappeared. He disappeared. Poof. Didn't want to know. Didn't care. Did you miss or crave having some a partner at that point? No. No. Because it had been so bad, do you think? Or because um, you just were so used to being self-sufficient? I think... I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, when the divorce come through, that hurt. That re That was final. And you always have this thing in your head, should I? You know, you, and then I think, well, I don't want to go back where I was. I've gone this far. The kids don't know him. He'd never come around. No, the, the answer to your question is I never. I don't really think I gave that much thought because I never had that much free time. I never had that much free time to sit and feel sorry for myself. or, And I always made sure... Whatever I did was, even if we were on the booze all night, my kids came first. I'd be up, get them to school. As soon as they go to school, I'd crash out, clean up, <laughs> have them to get home and have an early night. But it was, no, I don't think I ever gave myself time to feel sorry. Yeah. A lot of it's a blur. It was just one day into another, especially when they were tiny. Then I met... Who introduced, well, he didn't introduce me. I gave him a lift home one night. And as we stopped, he pulled the keys out of my car and took off. He says, come and have a coffee and I'll give you the keys back. I was angry. I was angry. So I went in there. Um, he took took the keys and he went and made a cup of coffee. He says, what are you taking it, whatever. Anyways, come and talk to me in my room. I said, no, I'm not coming in your room. He said, and I saw a light on just up the hallway. I said, whose room's that? He says, oh, that's the boss. I said, okay, I was going to have my keys back. And he said, no. He says, come on in my room. And he walked down the hall so confident I'd follow him. I went into the boss's room. And Glenn was lying there on the bed, you know, in his jocks. <laughs> and he's reading a book, but it's all in pieces. So I sat on the end of the bed. I said, that prick won't give me my car keys back. He says, I'm not in this. I said, fair enough. So I sat there doing the book. He walked back in naked. He said, are you coming through or what? And I said, I'm not coming now. I want my keys back. So he took off. He came back and threw the keys on the bed. By this time, Glenn and I were talking about books. And we just hit it off. And um, I didn't want to get involved with anyone. Glenn didn't want to get involved. He'd just come out of a bad marriage. So we decided we'd stick together because everybody was trying to make us up, you know. Oh, I know a girl who'd be fantastic for you. Or I know a bloke who really loves kids and I couldn't be bothered with that shit. Anyway, Glenn and I become such good friends. We ended up together. Out of all the people we were with, we're the only ones still together. Now, he moved in when I first found out I was pregnant with the youngest one, which we both decided we weren't going to have any more children. He accepted Bill and Jock hands down. There was no problem at all. And he told them from word get-go, I'm your dad, not your father. Yeah. That, that was how he's treated them ever since. Did he have children no. at this stage? No, no, no. And how old were you at this stage? He's 12 years older than me. So, yeah, I was 27, I think, when we got together. Yeah, I must have been because I was 28 when I had Glenn Cameron. yeah. Okay, so we'll jump to where my mother had breast cancer in the 70s. Because of that, my sister and I had to go yearly for our mammograms and all the rest of it from the age of, I think it was 31, 30, sorry, 30. We had to go and get yearly mammograms. And they always called me back, um, always. It was just the milk ducks. There was nothing to worry about. So when they got called me back in 2008, I wasn't overly worried. So I said to my daughter-in-law, Glenn wanted to go to Bunnings, and I hate Bunnings. 
So I said to my daughter-in-law, will you take me out there? And she said, yeah, not a problem. So she was with me when we went up there and they did the biopsy. And yeah, it was an aggressive cancer. I said, bullshit. <laughs> no, you don't, get, you don't get three different kinds of cancers. You can't. And he looked at the results and he says, no, he says, this has got to come out. He says, how long do you need before you can come in? I said, I need time to organise things at work and whatever. He says, okay, you've got a week. We'll get you in here as soon as we can now. It started off about the size of a grain of rice, about two mil, three mil. By the time they operated a week later, it was ten and a half mil. Now, that was a week. Anyway, they said he said he was going to do a lumpectomy see how it is but because of my history with um, bone cancer it was right back at the, the breast wall so he said he would he may have to go right in and have a look but there was no mention of the boob coming off I woke up the boob was gone and um, they said to me it was right next it was on the film of skin uh, on top of the ribs that it went down that far and they had to scrape some of the ribs to make sure that they got it all. I got through all that okay and that was fine, not a problem. He asked me if I wanted a breast reconstruction. I said, not at the moment, I want to get over this because I still had to go through chemo and all the rest. Now I started chemo and this lump started here. They gave me a three week break from chemo to get over that when another one started here. So they did, it was all abnormal cells poking up. This was in the middle of chemo. Then another one came up there and he says, Joe, I'm sorry, we're going to have to have another look. So they did another mammogram and there were cells all through this breast as well. Um, It was classed as secondaries, but it was a different type of cancer. So the cancer cells had manipulated itself to something else so that was four different types of cancers I had and they ended up taking this boob off anyway I finished the chemo Um, the last day of chemo round he'd been for his annual checkup with the up your bum thing colonoscopy (laughs) sorry Uh, we're sitting there and I've got the bucket in front of me because I just finished and you get that nauseous I'm sitting here with a bucket and Fairley says to Glenn, well, I'm sorry to tell you, you've got bowel cancer. What? I thought, oh, no, no. And he's really straight-laced. And me coming from the bush, I just said, you're fucking kidding me. Yeah, <laughs> straight out. And Glenn's going, shh, shh. And he says, look, I'm sorry, it's not a joke. He says, I don't joke about these things. He says, I realise you're having a rough trot. He says, but we've got to do something seriously. Then I got out of hospital, Glenn got out of hospital and I joined the Cancer Council. Well, I was in it before just sort of half-heartedly but I really decided I'd get into it. This was about 2009. I got so involved with it, I ended up being um, the chairperson for quite a few years and I ran the Relay for Life here in Charterst House. I started that up too. Um, One year, this area raised over three and a half thousand three and a half hundred thousand dollars and um, we got an award from Brisbane and all the rest of it then they said to me well next year we want four hundred we're in drought mate we're in drought this is no I said be grateful you got there's only because I knew a couple of big companies here that we actually got and I'd been pushing all the people at QH the lot you know I put my resignation in I said I quit I said we work our asses off up here for you bastards. All money goes down to the southeast corner. I was that angry and I was to meet up with some people to have tea or lunch or something up at the Enterprise. So I walked up there and um, Davey Moore come over and goes, G'day Joe, what are you doing? And I just bleh, about the Cancer Council. And I said, I'm sick of the money going down the southeast corner and these little bastards are up trying to con people out of money again. And he says, well, why don't we start our own? Okay, so, yeah, okay. This was about 2015 or 16, I think it was. You know, I started the paperwork and it took us close to six years to actually get um, recognition that we are. Now, just as we got the DGR, which is, means we could give receipts out for donations, anything over $5, 
COVID hit. <laughs> so, but our, our charity now actually will help anyone in need. If um, there's an elderly couple and she breaks a leg or whatever, we'll supply wheelchairs, we've got hospital beds. The hospital kindly donated a whole heap of stuff. Home care to try and keep people in their homes. We've donated lots of buckets, vacuum cleaners, anything to help the people. It's not just elderly who get help either. It's just anyone who genuinely needs help. And that's for the Our Town Foundation? No, Our Town Association. And that, that sort of brings us today. And it wasn't until after I was hit by the bus I had to go and see a psychologist. And that is where I got a lot of the information from my past that I'd carried forward. What do you mean by that? My anger towards my mother, because that was the first thing that comes up. How do you get along with your parents? I get on great with Dad. What about your mother? I'd rather not talk about her. You know, it's sort of very... To me, it was just normal. I didn't want to talk about her. Not, not, not discussing it. Everybody else's mothers, when I was a kid, would have dinner ready for them. They'd have make lunches for them. No, none of that for me. And so did that, what did that mean for you, like about your mum or your relationship or how that has affected other areas of your life? I think it showed me that I had shut down mentally. It showed me that I had um, closed my mind off for a lot of things. And I found out if I don't choose to remember I can change my reality for that day. And I decided from that point, it doesn't matter. What I need to do is different from what I want to do. Uh, this situation, you've come here today. Now, I could have told you a whole heap of shit in between a whole lot of rubbish. You would never know. But my conscience wouldn't let me. I'm trying to walk a line, not so much where I'm a goody two-shoes. I'm who I am. I swear like a bloody seaman. I grew up in Mount Isa, so I'll kick the guts out of any bastard who steps on my toes. But I also want to give. Um, I've been through so much in my life. I know what depression is. I did have a nervous breakdown at one stage, and I cannot remember Billy being in grade one. After that, and when the bus hit me, it made me, it forced me to look at what I'm doing. The decisions you make in life aren't yours to make. It's the circumstances that you're going through at the time that define what you have to do. You can either sit there and cry in your porridge or you can get up off your ass, put your big girl knickers on and keep going. And if you're having a bad day, if you help one person, that changes your whole outlook on life. If someone says hello to me, I'm grateful to God that that person recognises me as a friend. Because in your lifetime, you only come across five or six really close friends that you can absolutely 200% rely on in your whole life. I've got a lot of friends I know if I phoned up and said, can you help? They will do their utmost to do it. But you know they'd rather be doing something else. Whereas your five, six friends here, you know, are doing it with their heart, not their mind. And that's the difference. Once you sort all that out. Yeah, true connection. Yeah. So I don't ask people. I do have trouble asking for help. I do. Except for Glenn. He'll oh, I'll go to him for sympathy. He just looks at me and goes, yeah, right. Yeah. And I know the boys take the piss out of me all the time. Um, I shouldn't have sworn, should I? They, they, they tease me and carry on. I bet I would duck's disease and my bum drags on the ground and all this. But if I phoned any of them, they'd all be here within five minutes. Like when the bus hit me, the three of them all went out and bought a CD for me without each other knowing. And it was, um, I get knocked down, but I get up again. I got it three times from the three of them. Now, don't tell me that's not a psychic connection. That's right. I don't know if you can go out and connect it. What you do is you accept it. You don't try and connect, you accept. Everybody has got it. Do you ever have those feelings at times where you knew something was going to happen or you've met someone before, that deja vu feeling? Yeah. That is your inner psychic. You just have to learn to develop that. Yeah, I just 
Well, the reason I want to do this is because I think that there's so much anxiety out there and that comes from not yet being in the present. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think there's something so amazing about hearing someone's life story that I cannot even imagine the pain and the struggles that you've gone through. I don't look at it as pains and struggles. I look at it, I've had to go through that to be who I am today. It's not what I've gone through. It's how I've come out of it that has made me the person I am today. If you look at all the pain and struggle, because you only got half the story. If you had the whole story, I should really be in a loony bin. You know, seriously. And I mean, I got caught up in a cult. I got <laughs> sort of Pentecostal cult. Oh, they were right. Jesus is speaking to me. And wow. When you think about all the bullshit and you put the reality with it, what's left is just yourself. You're the one who's got to go to bed with yourself and lie there in a darkened, empty room hearing your voice in your head. It's your voice in your head. It's your reasoning you have to live with. So it's how you cope with the whole thing. And like I said, there's no promise of tomorrow. You can't do anything about yesterday. And what about today is going to set you apart from your old self to your new self? There's nothing you can do. And most of our realities are there for a reason. What do you learn from them? Not what did you go through. It's what did you bring out the other side. Yeah. Or who is this making me become? I guess. Like, if but even then. Like that, like, am I going to let this make me become someone who's just ruminating on something that's happened and spiralling down into a depression? Or do I just trust that this is going to take me somewhere and become someone? I think trust and faith have a lot to do with it. Um, I do believe on the other side because I hear a lot of them. Um, I know I'm not schizophrenic and I know I'm not mentally ill. These people are real to me. They show me things. I've come to terms with my mother and I've tried forgiving her in my head and in my heart. I have tried to forgive her, but she's not there for me to say, I'm sorry. And for some reason, I keep blocking her. And I know it's all my my doing. If I opened up, I'd probably get through. But at the moment, I'm not ready to do that. But if I saw her in person, face to face, well, it wouldn't be face to face, it'd be spirit to spirit, I'd be right, I'd be able to tell her that I do forgive her. I'm sorry for blaming her for a lot of things because obviously it was out of her control. And where my dad was, I mean, I think that was how he coped. It was, it was with his drinking. His only saving grace is I'm very much like him. The minute you get pissed, you want to party. <laughs> You've got to be a realist. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, look, I honestly don't know how to share a coping mechanism. But it's how you look at things. It's not what you're going through. It's how you can manipulate your mind to see it a different way. Right, um... When, when Cam passed, my first thought was for my son. I know that was wrong. It should have been for him, but it was for my son. And I remembered for a oh, good half hour that feeling I had when I couldn't see my daughter. Then they brought Cam in. And I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. It was just absolutely astounding to me. We got to cuddle him. We got to touch him. We got to say goodbye to him, you know. And all my grief for my daughter went there. And it was releasing. And I know that's an awful thing to say, an awful, awful thing. But I got to say goodbye to two babies that night, not one. And um, even Glenn said to me that I changed after that. And I'm thinking, I must have carried her all that time. I mean, she'd be 48 now. 47, 47. Every time Jock has a milestone, you do sit and think, I wonder if, I wonder what. And instead of doing that now, I have to have total acceptance that he's living for both of them. Yeah. I think that that's also true that you know, we, are, we get to 
human suffering is if you want to choose to look at it like what does shakespeare say nothing is good or bad but he makes it so that's so right that's right you, you overthink things reality yeah in terms of this happened how am i going to choose to look at it or yeah you know but i think sometimes it's so hard because our ego we're always producing so many thoughts that yeah. suddenly a doubt could come in or that negative thinking that that is i i totally 200 percent agree because people say, oh, you've got a big ego, you, you're up yourself. No, ego is that self-doubt. Ego is that voice in your head saying yes or no. Get rid of the ego and start thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're very right on that. You're on the right path. You're on the right ball. All you have to do is if you get that feeling, oh, God. I, I mean, I've got to admit, I do too every now and then. I just want to shut down. And Glenn will tell you, he knows when there's something wrong because I just shut down, that's it, don't want to talk, don't want to do anything. Just leave me alone. And he will. And when I'm ready, I emerge again. Yeah, it might only be... What do you do in that time? Is that sleeping? Is that just spending time by yourself, reading? A lot of the times it's doing nothing. It's just giving my body and my mind a chance to catch up with me. And I don't care what anyone says, it doesn't matter who you are. You need that shutdown time. Life's up and down. It is up and down. You can't dictate what you're going to do today. Now, I read a lot of Omar Khayyam and the Rubicons. Have you ever read the Rubicons of Omar Khayyam? It's a bit deep, but it's good. Now, part of the philosophy is we pass this way but once. Any good I can do, my fellow man, let me do it now because we may never pass this way again. And to me, that just summed up the whole of life. And that was the principle I brought the boys up on. Oh, Joe, thank you so much. No, that's fine. Have you got five minutes? And I'll do a quick reading I for love you. That. Thank you, Joe. I passed your way, and you did me a lot of good. I did stay for that reading, and for any curious listeners, all I'll say is, within it, I pulled the storyteller card. This has been the twelfth and final episode of season one of How Do You Decide? Will we pass this way again? And has this passing, the first season, done you any good? Look, I don't know. I do know this. The podcast has helped me decide to be more patient in not knowing the answers to things, or at least to try to be more patient. I hope it might have done the same for you. However it goes from here, whatever form you next hear my voice, and whenever that is, remains to be decided. Until then, make good choices.